Welcome, you are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lin Jonsudan, Jeroen van der Wen and Jaap Bai. Lawrence Kotlikoff is a William Fairfield Warren Professor and the Professor of Economics at Boston University. He received his PhD from Harvard and has a very impressive list of publications in the top economics journals. He has written extensively on many topics, including retirement schemes, wealth inequalities and the healthcare sector. His most recent book discusses the problem underlying the financial crisis and proposes a solution. His book, Jimmy Stewart is Dead, received much appraisal, including appraisals by several Nobel laureates in economics. We also invited the Dean of the Amsterdam Law School to give his reaction. You will hear him later on. Professor Kotlikov, uh, we are very honored to have you here. Welcome. It's my pleasure. Okay, so the title of your uh, book on the financial crisis is uh, Jimmy Stewart is Dead. With this title you refer to the movie It's a Wonderful Life, but many of our listeners may not be familiar with this movie, so maybe you can explain how this title relates to uh, the financial crisis. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is Dead uh, is, is a model after the, uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, and, and that movie is a Christmas movie that's shown usually uh, in December in the U.S. every year. And it's a story about a, a banker named George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who faces a run on his bank. And the run is uh, caused by some allegation that there's been some fraud in his bank. Anyway, uh, all of a sudden everybody wants their money back, and he doesn't have the money because he has, even though he's an honest person, he's made a fraudulent promise, which is that he can pay back on demand all the deposits. He can't, because he's lent them out in large part. So he becomes despondent and tries to kill himself. He's rescued by an angel, Clarence. The angel convinces him he needs to try and save the situation by going back and talking to the people. He comes back on Christmas Eve, makes a, a rousing speech, gets everybody to leave their money in the bank, and. Um, and everything ends happily. And so when you watch this movie every Christmas in the U.S., you get this uh, great feeling that uh, uh, Christmas is going to be terrific for this little community because uh, Jimmy Stewart has saved the day. But you also come away with the feeling and understanding that the financial system, as we've set it up, has the fantastic fragility, that there's this man-made risk If it hadn't been for Jimmy Stewart, things would have fallen apart. If it hadn't been for Ben Bernanke, uh, we could also have seen things potentially fall apart uh, at the national economic, international economic scale. Mm. That certainly is what a lot of people have said, that had Ben Bernanke not acted the way he did, and Hank Paulson and other leaders in, in Europe, there could have been a complete financial meltdown And uh, as it was, there was a partial financial meltdown. And uh, that's a financial structure that we don't need to maintain. That's one with an enormous amount of man-made fragility to no great purpose. And so that's why in this book, Jimmy Stewart is Dead, I not only describe uh, from an economics perspective what 
happened and what went wrong and why the financial system is extremely dangerous as it currently exists, but also how to fix it. And I described a proposal called limited purpose banking, which has received uh, a lot of support, not only by a number of Nobel Prize winners, five in economics endorsed the book on its back cover, but also George Schultz, the former Secretary of Treasury and State in the U.S., Bill Bradley, a very prominent former U.S. Senator, uh, some very major figures in, in economics and finance, uh, Jeff Sachs and Ken Rogoff and Simon Johnson, Neil Ferguson, uh, Michael Boskin, a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. All these people have endorsed the book. And uh, the most recent uh, endorsement was from Mervyn King, the former, the, not the former, the current uh, governor of the Bank of England, who endorsed the, pa- the paperback. So um, there's a lot of support for this, uh, for thinking about this particular resolution. Yes, so uh, you have a lot of support, (coughs) and uh, it is clear that we need some restructuring of the financial crisis. Before we go into the exact details of your solution, the limited purpose banking, maybe we can discuss some of the causes behind the crisis that you have identified. And one of them uh, that you stress is that we live in a world of multiple equilibria, and I think that this also plays a role in this movie, Wonderful Life. Maybe you can explain exactly what multiple equilibria means, and how this plays a role in, in the recent... Um, so multiple equilibria are, are, is the proposition that there's more than one uh, outcome for the economy that can arise, and that what, are, what outcome arises is more or less by uh, random chance. So, for example, if everybody expects bad times and takes steps t- to not hire because they don't think anybody else is hiring and therefore they don't think they're going to be able to sell any products that that they'll produce. So why should I produce anything if nobody's going to buy it? If I get discouraged, depressed about the economy and everybody else does, then I'll sit on my hands, everybody else will sit on their hands, we'll have a depression. We'll have less output, more unemployment. Alternatively, if I think it's, there's good times and other people think they're good times, then that can be a self-fulfilling expectation. So we have, in recent decades, a, a lot of economists in the macro area who've moved away from just simple Keynesian uh, models to uh, Keynes's deeper point that there can be uh, animal spirits, psychological or expectational, expectational uh, aspects to what uh, actually transpires. And in this uh, uh, great recession that we've seen, what happened was we had perhaps a trillion dollars of what are called toxic assets produced in the marketplace. But everybody got quite panicked. Our leaders got very panicked, and they panicked the public. So some people think that Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson saved the world. Uh, I think they did, but I think they also panicked the world in the way they behaved. So in some ways they caused the problem that they had to cure. Uh, So we we need to to realize that uh, when this occurred, uh, the same buildings were there the day after 
Bear Stearns went down and Lehman Brothers went down and Bank of America had to buy up Merrill Lynch and all these other major financial institutions, Northern Rock and, you know, your banks here in, in Holland had trouble. Um, those buildings were still there, right? The people that were employed by those banks were still there. All the people in the world were basically still there. The same human physical capital still there. All of a sudden, it's not working so well together. All of a sudden, you have less economic activity, less output. Right there, that's an indication of multiple equilibria. Because what's going on except that these inputs, these resources, these, these uh, factors of production aren't being fully utilized together. And that's because they're not being coordinated in their use. And that has to do with people's beliefs about, uh, about the future and their willingness to kind of work with others to, pr pr to use these uh, resources and these inputs. And that's why you can have uh, unemployment and recessions arising for really purely psychological reasons. I'm not saying that this Great Recession had nothing fundamentally real that was at its core. The financial market in the U.S. is fundamentally corrupt, and it caused a big problem here. But the fact that it got to be such a big problem is really uh, symptomatic of this multiple equilibrium problem. So that's why we need to have a, our economies are very sensitive to these coordination failures, people not getting able to coordinate their beliefs, and if there's financial collapse, that changes people's expectations of the future. And bingo, you have people laying off other people and you have depression, unemployment, or at least recession. That's why we need to keep the financial system from having collapse. And there's a simple way to do that, and that's called limited purpose banking, which is discussed in the book. Okay, so uh, you already mentioned uh, some people who are, are, or groups who are to blame for uh, uh, the financial crisis or the actual collapse. Um, the first group consists of those people who are now in Jimmy Sh uh, Stewart's shoes, actually, uh, financial traders. But you've also mentioned uh, the role of politicians. Could you say something about that? There are a lot of parties that were uh, involved in what happened here. We have... Uh, at the level of initiating the mortgages, we had people basically engaged in fraud. They were uh, helping people lie about their ability to repay these mortgages. So we had things called liar loans, no-doc loans, ninja loans, no income, no job. Uh, and then they were selling these securities to other parties who were selling them on to other parties without the full disclosure about what was going on. So at the heart of this problem was, was fraud. And uh, we, we sold the production and manufacture systematically of at least a tr probably a trillion dollars worth of fraudulent securities that were then spread throughout the world. And it might be two, th two trillion. We may never know for sure. That's why these securities are called toxic assets. They're not called toxic because they were just because they were risky. They're called toxic because they were fraudulent. And then you had the rating companies being paid billions of dollars to provide good ratings for these securities. So that's um, what I call insider rating. So that's another element of this financial malfeasance. You have uh, 
corporate uh, management uh, interested in trying to make a quick sale and pay themselves huge bonuses. You've got the boards of directors being paid huge amounts of money to approve the huge bonuses to the CEOs, and the CEOs are appointing the boards of directors. So you have those two sets of folks stealing from the shareholders. Then you have regulatory agencies who are captured because uh, they know that their next employer will be Wall Street. And then you have the politicians being bribed with, uh, with also billions of dollars uh, coming to them either uh, through campaign contributions or through lobbying efforts uh, um, to uh, do what, what the, uh, the banking community wanted them to do. So, so I'm not saying this was any big... Uh, organized conspiracy. I'm just saying that every industry looks out for itself, and this industry is particularly adept at that. But that we have uh, at every level here, we, we have a number of um, elements of financial malfeasance which uh, collectively make this uh, a very corrupt financial system. If this is uh, crony capitalism, if you want to call it that. This is third world financial markets in, a, in first world countries, uh, but it fundamentally has to change because it's gotten too dangerous. It's uh, and then you just had uh, you had the, the the real core problem here is the lack of of disclosure and transparency. If all this was out in the open, if you could check for yourself that the mortgage that your bank is holding on Joe Smith in Idaho, uh, you could actually double check that his, you know that you could check that Joe doesn't actually have a job when he says he does have a job and his house is not worth what was said. Then you could really very quickly get at the fraud here. But because no one was able to drill down and see on the web or even in the documents what the specific details of any particular uh, security, uh, what these securities were, were that these big banks were holding, uh, then it became very unclear what their assets were and also what their liabilities were. So in the end, the valuation of a company like Bear Stearns was being based on the valuation of the person at the top because the person at the top, in this case it was Jimmy Kane, who was the CEO of Bear Stearns, that person was the only one in a position to really know all the details of the assets and liabilities of his bank. He wasn't letting anybody else see it. So the valuation of Bear Stearns became a valuation of Jimmy Kane. Jimmy Kane, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, was uh, very often off playing bridge in major tournaments uh, at critical times, and he was also smoking dope and uh, doing engaging in other activities that weren't uh, what you would expect of a prudential banker. So, so at some point, people lost faith in Jimmy Stern, as uh, Jimmy Kane, sorry, and uh, then you saw his bank go from fifty-seven dollars a share to two dollars a share within the course of a week. Because it wasn't just that people lost faith in Jimmy Kane, but they lost faith that other people had faith in Jimmy Kane. So that's where you can have fraud fraud runs where people suspect fraud or they suspect that other people suspect fraud. And in an environment where there's proprietary information 
keeping anybody from seeing fundamentally what's going on, you can have runs because people start thinking, well, gee, that bridge might be shaky. I'm not going to walk across it because I've heard that some other people think it's shaky. Uh, so, yes, uh, all of this almost brought us to a meltdown, and uh, of course we need uh, restructuring. Uh, you haven't been playing bridge so much, but you've been thinking about a solution. Yeah. And maybe you can explain us what the solution is. Well, the solution is really very simple. All you have to do is to take the financial intermediaries, uh, regardless of what they call themselves, commercial banks, investment banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, uh, limited... Uh, um, equity partnerships and just tell them look if you're going to operate as financial intermediaries as financial middlemen and if you want to operate with limited liability so that you are you uh, at a personal level you owners of these companies are not liable personally for the debts of your company if you want to operate with that limited liability protection you have to operate in one way and one way only which is as a mutual fund company And mutual fund companies are companies that issue mutual funds. In the U.S., a third of our financial system is constituted by mutual fund companies. So a third of the intermediation is done by mutual fund companies. What I'm saying is that that glass, which is one-third full, should become 100% full. We should have all the financial corporations, companies that are operating with limited liability, operate strictly as mutual funds, companies, and then they're going to issue mutual funds, and each mutual fund itself is like a little bank that's taking in its money with no leverage. It's 100% equity financed. The mutual fund funds sell shares and take back money, and then they invest in the securities in which they're specializing. And the other, so, so consequently, since they're not leveraged, they can never fail. The securities in which they're investing in can lose value, so the mutual fund investors can lose uh, the value of their shares can go down or up, depending on what happens to the underlying securities. But the mutual fund itself can never fail, can never go bankrupt. The mutual fund holding company can't go bankrupt, and therefore the financial intermediaries as a group who are incorporated, and that would they would constitute the majority of the of the financial sector. Uh, they cannot fail either. So you'll never have financial collapse again, and you'll never have the panic associated with financial collapse, which has been associated with so many major recessions and depressions over the centuries. So this is a a way to stop financial collapse for good. So the combination of mutual funds, no leverage of the mutual funds, uh, this full disclosure, this uh, this what I call Federal Financial Authority to verify, appraise, uh, rate, and disclose the securities, and having the securities being bought and sold at auction, those three elements, very simple, can get us to a system that can never fail and really uh, move from third world finance to first world finance to modern finance without fraud. And that's what we need. So you have already stated that your proposal of limited purpose banking can be implemented anywhere. So do you think that the causes of the crisis in Europe uh, are similar to those in the US? And for example, would it have also prevented a case like ISAFE? They're basically the same because we have in all these countries 
traditional banking systems where the banks take in money, they borrow money. Some of that borrowing is called deposits. Some of it is called just purchases, the sale of, of bonds to by the banks to the public. And uh, the banks are saying, don't worry, we're going to repay you. And then they take the money and gamble with it without telling anybody for sure what they're doing. And then if their gambles fail, then they say, oh, gee, we have a problem. And they turn to the taxpayer to try and bail, bail them out. Because if they were to fail, then if they were to go bankrupt, then uh, they won't be able to repay their loans. And some of their loans are coming from other banks. So those loans to other banks that they owe to other banks are the assets of the other banks. So the other banks will now see some of their assets fail and they could go bankrupt. So you have this uh, domino problem where one bank's failure can cause another bank's failure, can cause another bank's failure. The whole system is interconnected under limited purpose banking with the mutual fund companies. Uh, you have natural firewalls between the mutual funds. If one mutual fund loses all, if all the assets that that mutual fund has invested in are lost, it doesn't affect another mutual fund. There's no interconnection here. So, so that's what we have here. We have a system that's very fragile, that's a great advantage to the bankers, but a great risk to the public. We need to make Wall Street safe for Main Street. Right now, it's extremely dangerous for, for Main Street. And the fiscal problems of the countries are interconnected with the, this concern about financial collapse. There's a, there's a relationship here because just, just suppose, for example, that Ireland and Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy and Belgium were to default on their debt over the next six months. Well, what would happen? The, the major banks in Europe hold a lot of that debt. They, I presume, would become, uh, uh, would fail without major infusions of money by the European Central Bank. Now, the European Central Bank, if it prints up lots and lots of money and starts get, using it to, to bail out these banks, well, then what happens? Uh, people start to see that there's a lot of money being printed. Then they start to worry about prices going up. Then they start to think about maybe there's going to be high inflation and therefore it may be even hyperinflation. Then they start to say, well, gee, if there's going to be prices going up, I better get to my bank and get my money out before prices start rising so I can buy something real, like a, like a chair or like a car, so I can secure the real value of my, uh, my money before the money becomes worthless. So governments, uh, so printing money is not really a panacea, a solution, because that can itself lead to a, a complete run on all the, you know, a, a major run on all the, all the banks, even the ones that are, quote, solvent, uh, that weren't holding Portuguese bonds, for example. 
and that could lead to total financial meltdown. None of this would happen with limited purpose banking. If the fiscal, if countries get into fiscal problems, well, some people might have invested in, in Portuguese bonds through their mutual fund. They would have lost value, and that's that. The mutual fund would lose its uh, lose value. Its share values would go down. But people lose money every day uh, on the stock market, and other days they make money. It doesn't cause uh, worldwide financial panic. But worldwide financial bank collapse would cause worldwide financial panic and put us into a Great Depression, no question about it. And we're sitting here today with this uh, great uh, economic sword of Damocles hanging over uh, the developed world. And we need to remove it because we have an obligation to our, our, at least to our kids, if not to ourselves, to make sure that we have a, a, a stable financial uh, system that's not corrupt. And that's easy to do. So we don't really have a choice between maintaining the status quo and limited purpose banking. We have an obligation to implement limited purpose banking immediately. We have asked Professor Duperon, the Dean of the Amsterdam Law School, to respond to your proposed solution to make Wall Street safe for Main Street. I propose we now listen to his comments. Edgar Duperon is the Dean of the Amsterdam Law School and as a professor of private law specialized in financial law. He has written a report on the supervision of iSafe in the Netherlands by the Dutch Central Bank. This was on request of the Dutch government. So, Kotlikov's proposal has many endorsements, both in high policy circles and academia. Do you endorse his proposal as well? Well, I, I don't care so much for these endorsements, um, especially not those by Nobel Prize winners, because, uh, well, Nobel Prize winners were behind a, a lot of the things that went wrong in the financial sector. So uh, I like to judge the book on its contents and not on its uh, endorsements. And I think that he has very strong uh, proposals, um, uh, basically uh, taking out um, all promises that can't be kept. Uh, out of the financial uh, uh, system, uh, in essence saying uh, there's always risk involved. Uh, the risks should be borne uh, by people. They should know about this risk and they should not be protected by uh, putting that risk on other people who are not aware of it. That, that's the basic um, uh, idea of, of his. And I think that's a sound idea. If you, if you put money in a bank and want a complete guarantee that you will get it back, um, then you take no risk uh, and no return. Um, and if you want to take some risk, uh, you get a higher promise of a return, but also bear the risk, and you can't divest that on other people. Um, th I think that's a very strong argument, and it's in, in theory feasible to do it. Um, my problems with the proposal are more of a practical nature. Uh, how do we get there? And he, he writes on that in his book. He, he describes how Citibank can be transformed from what it is now into one of his in his idea of a, a combination of mutual funds. Um, but, well, that, uh, that chapter could be expanded uh, relating to the rights, for instance, of shareholders, of bondholders, what will happen in the meantime, what, what, what will it mean for creditors' confidence if we make this move from one kind of institution to the other one. So the, the practical implementation of his uh, proposals uh, are what, what worries me. Uh, from the legal point of view, and then from the economic point of view, but I'm not an economist, um, uh, the result of his system is that, that all the money that's put in deposits, for instance the money that was in iSave, uh, cannot be used to borrow against, because there's no leverage on that anymore. Uh, and I can't see what that means for economic development, because the leverage ratio on deposits is theoretically, historically, 
um, the way banks have earned money. And if you take that out, um, how do we stimulate the economy? And I, I get the feeling, but again, I'm not an economist, that, that he uh, wants the government to do it. Say, well, if, if you want to stimulate the economy in that way, then, then, then the Fed or here the, the, the European Central Bank should just print more uh, money. Uh, I don't know whether that's the, the, the best way to do it, but as a lawyer I can't really comment on that. But I would, I would like to read more of his on, on that question. Yes. And, and about these legal barriers, do you have any specific things in mind why this, is, why this, mo th this may be a challenge to reform from a legal perspective? Um, w well, the, the point is that at this point in time, uh, deposits are used as, as a, a basis for the whole way a bank functions. And if you take that out and say, well, that's now a cash mutual fund, um, what will happen to the rest of the bank? You can say, well, we transform that and we, we convert bonds to equity, but you can't just do that. You need rules for that and, and you take away people's rights and they have some protection against that. If, if a bank's insolvent, you can do it. You can say, well, you wouldn't have gotten any money anyway, so now we're converting your bonds into stocks or we make, we make them worthless in another manner. But if there's not a situation of insolvency, the, 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 the legal basis to transform, for instance, the, the bondholders into people with an equity holder position uh, seems to be rather difficult. Uh, it, he more or less presupposes that all financial institutions are in a situation of insolvency. And maybe his reply would be, but I would be interested to hear that. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. We just don't re really recognize that that's the case, but they are. <laughs> okay, let's wait for his response and thank you so much for your valuable reaction. You're welcome. After hearing the comments of our Dean, would you like to respond to his questions on uh, the feasibility of your proposal? Uh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, Dean Duperon's uh, comments. I thought he summarized in two, two minutes uh, the essence of what uh, the problem is extremely well, which is that we have a system of, of uh, finance where the fin financiers are gambling with other people's money and uh, leaving, taking the upside and leaving the downside uh, without the taxpayer really understanding what he's taking on. And uh, so the dean uh, sounds like he's, uh, uh, he likes the, uh, the general thrust of what I'm trying to achieve with the plan, but he's concerned about the actual legality of implementing it. The, the only thing that, uh, would be required to move to limited purpose banking is to to require that the financial intermediaries uh, establish themselves as mutual fund companies and start marketing mutual funds and that they can no longer borrow. Uh, so that would be required and then we also uh, would be having them take their checking accounts and turn those into cash mutual funds that would be backed 100% by cash. Now, I think in the U.S. at least, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has the ability to tell a bank, uh, you need to hold uh, reserves and you, can, you have to hold those in cash to back every dollar of your checking accounts. And by the way, we're now going to call your checking accounts a cash mutual fund. 
So the FDIC tomorrow could come to a bank and say, guess what? We've changed the name of your checking accounts to a cash mutual fund. We've decided that you have to have 100% reserves against those, not 10% reserves, and it all has to be in cash. Well, bingo, we now have a cash mutual fund in that bank. And then the government says, uh, you cannot borrow, uh, you cannot leverage. Uh, that, that's, the government is engaged in establishing capital requirements for banks, and they can just say, look, you're not allowed to, um, you have to have 100% capital requirements at the margin. You cannot do any additional borrowing. borrowing. Past borrowing, we're not going to change, but <clears throat> future borrowing is, an, is a no-no. And consequently, uh, and we also uh, are going to regulate you so that you have to, at the margin, uh, do one thing, which is to issue mutual funds. You have to set yourself up as a mutual fund company and issue mutual funds. So I think legally all this could be done. I think they, these banks could be transformed into mutual fund companies with cash, cash mutual funds, 100% backed by cash. The banks have plenty of excess reserves now that they can use to fully back dollar for dollar the cash mutual funds. Those are the only mutual funds under limited purpose banking that are back to the buck. Everything else is floating in the market because those are the only mutual funds where there's actually a buck to back uh, every dollar that's put into the mutual fund. And um, the rest of the assets and liabilities of the bank based on past practices would just over time generate a cash flow that would uh, uh, be paid out to the shareholders in the form of dividend payments. And then the shareholders would recycle those funds back into the financial sector by buying mutual fund shares. So I see the, uh, uh, the process as an immediate transition to limited purpose banking, uh, but, uh, and, but gradually selling off the net assets of the banking system that currently exists. So we can have a gradual transition as well as an immediate transition, a gradual working down of the old uh, net asset positions of the banks, and, um, but an immediate switch to, uh, to mutual fund banking at the margin. Okay. So maybe you will have the chance to talk to the dean further today to on the on this subject. Uh, the dean's clearly in, in two seconds. You can tell the dean is a brilliant man, and uh, I'd love to talk to him about this in more length. All right. Well, thank you very much for doing this interview with us. It's been my uh, extreme pleasure. This was Leap a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes,